This is Macro Horizons, episode 80, Cardboard Crowds, presented by BMO Capital Markets. I'm your host, Ian Lingen, here with John Hill and Ben Jeffrey to bring you our thoughts from the trading desk for the upcoming week of August 3rd. As professional sports teams get creative with novel ways to fill the stands, we cannot help but ponder, where do the cardboard fans park? And shouldn't they be wearing masks? The views expressed here are those of the participants and not those of BMO Capital Markets, its affiliates, or subsidiaries. Each week, we offer an updated view on the U.S. rates market and a bad joke or two. But more importantly, the show is centered on responding directly to questions submitted by listeners and clients. We also end each show with our musings on the week ahead. Please feel free to reach out on Bloomberg or email me at ian.lyngen at bmo.com with questions for future episodes. We value your input and hope to keep the show as interactive as possible. So that being said, let's get started. There's no question that the week just passed was an exciting one in the treasury market. We saw the lower bound of the trading range that had been in place throughout the last several months break to the downside. That put a 50 basis point 10-year yield squarely on the table as a possibility. In addition, it's very consistent with the general seasonal patterns trending lower in rates through the summer months. That pattern has historically ended in the middle of September around the 15th, which has historically marked the lows for 10-year yields. We also saw the weakest real GDP print on record, with the U.S. economy shrinking at an annualized pace of 33% during the second quarter of 2020. Now, this certainly isn't a surprise given the lockdowns associated with the pandemic. Nonetheless, it does give context for the magnitude of the COVID-19 fallout. As investors look forward, it will be useful to have the context of how significant the economy did contract. Similarly, we saw a year-over-year decline of 12% for Eurozone GDP in the second quarter. Let us not forget the FOMC meeting. The Fed didn't really do much in terms of pushing the dovish envelope. They did extend repo facilities into 2021, with the end date now being March 31st of next year. This is clearly designed to ensure against any liquidity squeeze around the turn of the year. They also extended dollar swap lines, which will serve a similar purpose of avoiding a dollar squeeze. That said, they did meet expectations for very little to occur at the July meeting. The market is currently focused on the September meeting for a transition into a new framework, presumably one that involves an average year-over-year inflation target. Investors are also anticipating a transition to stronger level-specific forward guidance from the Fed, which will ensure that the zero-interest rate policy will be in place for the foreseeable future. The translation of these policy developments to U.S. Treasury yields has been relatively straightforward. We see two-year yields trading well below 15 basis points at 11, and even further out the curve, out to the five-year sector, 
rates are below 25 basis points. This is very consistent with investors' expectations for the Fed to remain on hold for the foreseeable future. And if anything, the risks are skewed even lower as a potential for more dramatic policy action, such as yield curve control, which might come back onto the table in the event that the U.S. economy doesn't recover as quickly as anticipated. Looking further out the curve at 10s and 30s, it's difficult to try to fade the price action. We've seen the steady grinding bid that's been associated with recent developments and also reflects a bit of capitulation on the part not only of investors looking for a V-shaped recovery, but also on the part of firms hoping to retain employees through the initial phases of the lockdown and reemerge on the other side with staff levels comparable to that seen at the beginning of the year. As evidenced by the 1.4 million initial jobless claims figures, it's clear that the layoffs do continue and it's prudent to exercise caution as next week's non-farm payrolls print quickly approaches. So guys, we've gotten a couple of thought-provoking questions this week, and I think a great place to start is what is going to get us out of this range in either direction, whether that be higher or lower rates? Sure, we saw the bottom of the yield range slightly redefined in the wake of the GDP print, but generally speaking, 10-year yields are where they have been for much of the last several months. Yeah, Ben, I think you make a good point. We did see the lower bound for 10-year rates extended this week, although it wasn't truly a repricing. Instead, I would characterize it as more of the same. It's been a slow grinding bid that has pushed rates lower, and it's occurred at a time when typically the seasonal factors would be constructive for the treasury market. So then the broader question is, what would it take to truly reprice outright levels in the treasury market? On the downside for rates, we could see a revival of nationwide lockdowns and another significant shedding of jobs comparable to what we saw in the beginning of the pandemic. That would do it for a 25 basis point repricing lower in 10 years. However, barring that, what I suspect will be the case will be that we will continue to see a process of capitulation. So this capitulation is coming in several forms. One is those anticipating a V-shaped recovery are giving up those ambitions and simply adding treasury exposure as the rally has gotten ahead of them. The other key aspect of capitulation will come in the form of firms who have been retaining employees as long as they possibly can in the hopes that once the economy reopens in some version of full or new normal, that they'll be able to utilize the labor force once again. On the flip side, when I contemplate what it would take to get rates higher, I think that to a large extent is going to be contingent on the success of the vaccine trials and any initial rebound that we see in terms of real growth in the third and fourth quarter. The election is, of course, a wild card, although I don't expect it's going to be as defining for the outright level of yields as we might have assumed when we came into this year. And left off that list is something pretty notable, which is the next round of fiscal stimulus. And I completely agree with that omission simply by the virtue of the fact that Something else will be coming out of Congress, there's little doubt of that. What remains unknown is the scale, and given the fact that fiscal stimulus 2.0 
hasn't been rushed through the legislature, to me, that suggests the details are not going to be paradigm shifting. And the fact that the HEALS Act in some form is already incorporated in A, stock valuations, and B, the rates market, limits the potential of that development to materially recast the outright level of yields. And for all the discussion of the fiscal or monetary stimulus, one of the things that's been a little bit thematic over the past two months is the fact that the drop in mortgage rates has not matched the drop in treasury yields. Now, given the importance of housing for most households' balance sheets, this is something that's still a little bit of an untapped potential, meaning that were mortgage rates to take another leg lower, that could create another round of refinancing, lower interest costs for households, and implicitly create a little bit of a stimulative impulse. Ian, what are your thoughts on that playing out? And if the Fed really wanted to push that to occur, how might they go about it? Well, I do think that that is a significant unlocked potential for consumption in the U.S. It's not as evident to me that there is a clear and direct path for the Fed to implement it, however. The short answer is they could go in and more aggressively buy mortgages and effectively try to compress the mortgage basis. Now, The fact that they're already in pretty aggressively buying in the MBS market does suggest that they might be running up against some of the practical constraints of QE. We do know that it's intuitive that credit lending standards should be somewhat tighter given the significant damage being done to the labor market. So the probability of defaults has increased, certainly in significant sectors of the housing market. However, rates are one of the Fed's most powerful tools to spur consumption, and the stubbornly high mortgage basis has created a meaningful headwind. I would also say that it's not like the Fed's actions haven't lowered mortgage rates. You know, if we go back to 2019, the average 30-year fixed was north of 4.5%, and now it's down to 3%. So I agree with you, Ian, that it is a relatively high bar to try to squeeze that channel too much without taking on undue credit risk. But it is something to be mindful of going forward, especially a few quarters out, if and when some of the concerns about potential household defaults start to moderate. So in my mind, this is very much going to be a story, but it probably is more a 2021 or 2022 narrative where we see that next big wave of refis, unless, of course, the entire interest rate complex takes another leg lower, which would be that capitulation that you were talking about earlier, Ian. And while no one would argue that lower borrowing costs don't help consumption, that line of thinking doesn't necessarily take into account consumer confidence, which unfortunately is again tied back to the path of the virus, just like Powell emphasized in his press conference this past week. So even with cheaper borrowing costs, lower mortgage rates, that by itself won't necessarily drive a massive increase in consumption. On the margin, sure, but until people are confident enough in the actual health situation or the security of their employment, it's going to be challenging to really see a surge in consumption, regardless of where borrowing costs are. Well, this brings us to another question that we've heard a fair amount, and that is, how likely is it that two-year yields will drop below zero And will it be harder for that to occur than to actually see the Fed transition to a negative rates policy? Our baseline assumption is that it will be much easier to see two-year yields below the zero bound than it will be to convince the Fed that it's time to do the same. 
That's not a challenging argument to make at the moment, given that two-year yields are at just 11 basis points. And if at some point the economy continues to deteriorate and the Fed is called on to do more, a yield curve control comes back on the table, and then more chatter about the potential for negative policy rates only follows intuitively. I think one of the things that's going to be a big headwind for two-year yields moving negative is just the natural supply glut that we're going to get in the front end as the Treasury has to finance these deficits. This isn't insurmountable by any means, but if you think of where two-year OIS will be, sure, that can probably move negative because probabilistically you can't 100% count out negative rates over the next eight quarters. But given the supply glut, treasury yields could continue to trade at a positive spread to that OIS. So not only would you need to see OIS go negative, you'd also need to see that spread collapse at a moment with very, very elevated supply. Again, not impossible, especially with the Fed QE program in the background, but something to be mindful of as to why it's a high bar to see that occur even if dramatically easier than seeing overnight rates dip negative. And the one thing that would really trigger such a policy shift at some point will be if the labor market stalls in its attempt to recover. The upcoming non-farm payrolls report, I think, will be very informative in this regard. The consensus currently is for roughly 1.6 million new jobs, and that's been ratcheted down as we've got the updated continuing claims figures. One of my primary concerns is that the level of stabilization in the weekly claims number is higher than many in the market were anticipating, and that suggests that the paused reopenings and the flagging consumer confidence are leading firms to reduce their labor forces more than we would have expected given the earlier signs that the economy was coming back to life. So fair to say that Friday's NFP print could actually be a point of data that alters how treasuries are trading? For the first time in a while, yes. And all else being equal, I would say that there's a non-zero probability that we have a negative NFP print. And that would be a shock to the market in the current environment. And on that point, Ian, if we see a negative NFP print in a few days, I don't think I'm outside the mainstream thinking and assuming that 10-year yields move below 50 basis points in short order. Yeah, and below 50 basis points in a sustainable fashion. In the run-up to the employment report, it's also pretty conceivable that we could dip below 50 basis points as a test from a technical perspective, but with the confirmation of weaker first-tier data via the BLS, I think that that would be the type of recasting or repricing of forward expectations that would change the presumed path of rates between now and the end of the year. And before we even get to NFP next Friday, we do get Treasury's quarterly refunding announcement on Wednesday. Ben, what are you going to be looking for? Yeah, John, you touched on issuance earlier, and Wednesday morning's release, unsurprisingly, is going to be the latest confirmation that auction sizes are, wait for it, going up again. And in terms of 10- and 30-year auctions, consensus is sitting right around another $3 billion increase to each of those benchmarks. But outside of the auction sizes in particular, some other points of interest might be more information around the timing of the introduction of a SOFR floater, how Treasury is thinking about the guidance around their cash balance, and how the massive amount of CMBs they've issued are going to be refinanced. It's not out of the question that some of those become institutionalized as new benchmark bills. But in the very front end, I definitely wouldn't be surprised to see that as a topic that gets brought up. And Ben, with all of this issuance, how have we seen foreign demand at auctions evolve? Are there any notable trends of late, especially given the recent volatility in rates and still 
elevated treasury yields versus other sovereign comparables? Yeah, for all this talk about how low yields are in the U.S., comparatively speaking, they're still quite high, which is exactly the driver behind this increase in foreign sponsorship we've seen, particularly in the very front end of the curve. Sure, six-month bill yields at nine basis points isn't exactly a screaming buying opportunity, but at least it's positive. Well, the flip side is the trend toward a weaker dollar will probably take out some of the potential returns for foreign investors. And we haven't talked a great deal about the dollar, but there's been a lot of chatter about the potential for the dollar to lose its status as the reserve currency. Now, that certainly is not our baseline assumption, nor do we think that it would occur overnight. But We're sympathetic to the argument that as the Fed continues to expand its balance sheet, we should have natural downward pressure on the dollar, combined with the fact that at least there is a perception that other regions, specifically Europe, have done a better job at dealing with the pandemic than the U.S., and as a result, the economic outlook here is a bit dimmer. So with those pressures as a backdrop, I think that the ongoing weakness of the U.S. dollar will be an important consideration for the balance of the So Ian, talking about different regions, we all know how treasured treasuries are in the US, but what's the most popular B in Japan? Well, it would have to be JGBs. You know me. That was pretty bad even for us. Anybody else in the mood for euros for lunch? A lot more expensive than they used to be. The week ahead offers a variety of top-tier economic data, culminating with Friday's BLS employment report. The consensus as it currently stands is for non-farm payrolls to increase by 1.6 million and the unemployment rate to decline to 10.5%. Consensus numbers such as these would be easy to dismiss on the part of market participants if for no other reason than it's July data, and if anything, the increase in paused reopening efforts and the rising COVID-19 case counts have investors anticipating that the balance of the summer might prove far more detrimental to the employment landscape. We also see ISM manufacturing on Monday, with the consensus looking for a 53.6 print, as well as non-manufacturing on Wednesday, with investors anticipating 55.0. What all this implies for the U.S. rates market remains to be seen, but as it stands, our current takeaway is that we expect the trend incrementally lower in rates to persist as the lower bound of the trading range is redefined. Recall that throughout the bulk of the last several months, the 53.8 basis point level represented the floor for rates. Now that that has been breached, a move below 50 basis points in tens is very reasonable to anticipate given the seasonal factors that come into play as August unfolds. The ongoing strength in the equity market remains impressive, and with the S&P 500 solidly above 3,200, it's a difficult trend to really advocate fading, especially given the Fed's ongoing commitment to provide monetary policy accommodation if and when needed. The balance sheet continues to expand, and the Fed is committed to keeping rates at effectively zero for the foreseeable future. To a large extent, the next big move in financial markets is going to be a function of the phase three trials of some of the front-runner vaccines, which are expected to be known either in late October or November. This will give the market better context for the prospects of a COVID-19 vaccine to be rolled out in early 2021. 
Until that point, however, we generally anticipate a relatively low volatility environment with rates largely contained to a trading range that is actively being defined. This leaves the shape of the yield curve once again as a directional trade with a flattening bias the only discernible trend for the time being. We've reached the point in this week's episode where we'd like to offer our sincere thanks and condolences to anyone who has managed to make it this far. And in the wake of the weakest GDP print on record, it's clear there's only one direction to go from here. We just don't know what direction that is. Thanks for listening to Macro Horizons. Please visit us at bmocm.com backslash macrohorizons. As we aspire to keep our strategy effort as interactive as possible, we'd love to hear what you thought of today's episode. So please email me directly with any feedback at ian.lingen at bmo.com. You can listen to this show and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast provider. This show and resources are supported by our team here at BMO, including the FIC Macro Strategy Group and BMO's marketing team. This show has been produced and edited by Puddle Creative. This podcast has been prepared with the assistance of employees of Bank of Montreal, BMO Nesbitt Burns Incorporated, and BMO Capital Markets Corporation. Together, BMO, who are involved in fixed income and foreign exchange sales and marketing efforts. Accordingly, it should be considered to be a product of the fixed income and foreign exchange businesses generally, and not a research report that reflects the views of disinterested research analysts. Notwithstanding the foregoing, this podcast should not be construed as an offer or the solicitation of an offer to sell or to buy or subscribe for any particular product or services, including, without limitation, any commodities, securities, or other financial instruments. We are not soliciting any specific action based on this podcast. It is for the general information of our clients. It does not constitute a recommendation or a suggestion that any investment or strategy referenced herein may be suitable for you. It does not take into account the particular investment objectives, financial conditions, or needs of individual clients. Nothing in this podcast constitutes investment, legal, accounting, or tax advice, or a representation that any investment or strategy is suitable or appropriate to your unique circumstances, or otherwise constitutes an opinion or a recommendation to you. BMO is not providing advice regarding the value or advisability of trading in commodity interests, including futures contracts and commodity options, or any other activity which would cause BMO or any of its affiliates to be considered a commodity trading advisor under the U.S. Commodity Exchange Act. BMO is not undertaking to act as a swap advisor to you or in your best interests in you, to the extent applicable, will rely solely on advice from your qualified independent representative in making hedging or trading decisions. This podcast is not to be relied upon in substitution for the exercise of independent judgment. You should conduct your own independent analysis of the matters referred to herein, together with your qualified independent representative, if applicable. BMO assumes no responsibility for verification of the information in this podcast. No representation or warranty is made as to the accuracy or completeness of such information, and BMO accepts no liability whatsoever for any loss arising from any use of or reliance on this podcast. BMO assumes no obligation to correct or update this podcast. This podcast does not contain all information that may be required to evaluate any transaction or matter, and information may be available to BMO and or its affiliates that is not reflected herein. BMO and its affiliates may have positions, long or short, and affect transactions or make markets in securities mentioned herein, or provide advice or loans to, or participate in the underwriting or restructuring of the obligations of, issuers and companies mentioned herein. Moreover, BMO's trading desks may have acted on the basis of the information in this podcast. For further information, please go to bmocm.com slash macrohorizons slash legal.